0: Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsfield Baptist Church. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here, and I'm so glad that you're here this morning and you're able to join us live. Some of you are from home, and you're joining us there, and we're so glad that you're able to invite us into your living room, and we're so grateful to be there as well. Several years ago, we used to have a ministry here that many of you will remember. It was Upward Basketball. And basketball was a wonderful ministry that we had where we actually used the, basketball, the tool of basketball to teach children about the gospel of Christ. And I always loved to coach. And one of the, the age groups that I always loved to coach were the first and second grade boys or girls. Now, the reason I love to coach first and second grade boys and girls is when you're coaching first and second grade boys and girls, you don't need to know a whole lot about basketball. Because nobody on your team knows anything about basketball. And so I loved coaching them. And on every one of those teams I've ever coached, whether it was boys or girls, there's always that one kid that always wanted the ball but didn't know what to do with it when they got it. And when they got the ball, sheer panic began to set in. And the reason panic set in is because this kid who receives this ball all of a sudden has this this multitude of voices descending on him or her, telling them what they ought to do with the ball. All of their teammates are screaming, pass me the ball, pass me the ball. Their parents are screaming, shoot the ball, shoot the ball, or dribble the ball, or pass the ball. Then you've got the referees who are standing next to them trying to give them some instruction, telling them what to do with the ball. So the child is absolutely frozen like a deer in the headlights hanging on to this thing that they've always wanted but now are so confused and don't have a clue what to do with it. We're living in a... And one of the things that I would teach them, and I would teach them this, I'd say, Listen, if you ever find yourself in that situation, and you will, And all the voices are coming in on you. There's one voice I want you to listen to. There's one person I want you to turn to. I want you to turn to me, your coach. And I want you to look at me. And as your coach, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. I'm going to give you the instruction that's right. And I'm going to get you out of this mess that you're in. We're living in some times today that are probably the most (laughs) emotionally charged times that we've ever experienced in our culture. And all of us can agree to this. We are experiencing things in our culture right now that none of us has ever really experienced. And we're hearing a multiplicity of voices converging on us in all of this crisis. For instance, with the COVID-19 thing, how many voices have we heard? Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Oh, take this medicine, don't take this medicine. Go to this place, don't go to this place. Do this social distancing, do this. And we constantly hear all of these reports from the experts who none of them agree with one another. And we receive it all, and it's confusing, frustrating, and maybe even at times, angering. Then you put on top of that, the situation that happened with George Floyd in Minnesota. And we see the injustice that happened there, and now we see social unrest all across our country. And again, we're hearing voices. Everybody's talking. You need to do this. You need to believe this. You need to act this way. You need to say this. And all the while, all of these voices are converging on us, and many of us are confused. Some of us don't want to say anything because we're going to say the wrong thing. And no matter what we say, somebody is going to take offense to our position. And we're going to find ourselves in opposition with many people. And we're living in a time where many of us are confused. And in the midst of that, our Heavenly Father is saying to his children, Look at me. Look at me. Listen to me. Pay attention to my word. Pay attention to my heart. Give attention to what I have to say to you because if you listen to me and you walk with me and you listen with an intentness towards obedience, then you're going to get out of this situation that you find yourselves in. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to listen to the word of God. We're going to turn our attention to what God has to say to all of us here and those of you who are at home. And as we turn our attention to the truth of God's word, we're going to hear a very clear direction of what God wants to do in us now. I want you to know that this is probably one of the most challenging messages of the 26 years that I've pastored this church that I've ever had to do. And the reason it's so challenging is we're coming one day removed from the 4th of July celebration. It's a time where we recognize the birth of our nation. And and for most of my life, if not all my life, the 4th of July has always been a very positive thing. It's a time where we celebrate God's providence in forming one of the greatest nations on the planet. It's in the opportunity that we get to reflect the Judeo-Christian heritage that is the foundation for our democracy. It's a time where we reflect the sacrifices of so many men and women of all different ethnic backgrounds and color who sacrificed to make this nation great. And then there's the other side of the unspoken history, the points where people were mistreated, the places where people did not have the same rights and privileges because of their ethnic background and because of their skin color. Some of that that even goes against the Declaration of Independence where we say the, the, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and they don't feel like they've ever had those same opportunities. So when we come to this 4th of July celebration, people are coming for this independence from different perspectives. And again, throw in all the other things, the the identity politics. Throw in all of the, the media that's seeking to further divide the people of America. And what do we find? We find all of these voices converging. And this is a very difficult time. I say this may be one of my most challenging messages, and here's why. Because for some groups, I'll not say enough, or I'll say too much. For other groups, I'll not say enough, or I'll say too much. And by the time I leave this platform today, everybody might be mad at me. And if everyone's mad at me, at least I would have accomplished one goal and everybody walking out in unity. (laughs) But today, we want to turn our attention to the Word of God. Why? Because we have kingdoms in conflict. And in the midst of these kingdoms in conflict, what do we do? Here's what I want you to do. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. When you find Acts 17, verse 22, then I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. We're going to look at these two passages this morning. And and listen, if ever there was a message that I feel like God has put on my heart, this is one. And it's for the church, not just our church, but for the church in this day. And while it has been a struggle for me this week to figure out how to say this and dependent on the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word, it is also a bit of excitement for me today that's energized me to share this truth with us. And the reality is this, there are kingdoms in conflict. It's been that way ever since Adam and Eve. When God created Adam and Eve, they rebelled against his goodness and as a result formed the kingdom of man, which was broken and led by sin and the flesh and has led to every kind of human abuse imaginable since that point. And Augustine, who was a great church father, comes out with an incredible work called The City of God. If you have time and you have a whole year, take it and study it. It'll take that long. And the city of God, he paints a picture of two cities that exist parallel to one another but are diametrically opposed. And this is where we find ourselves and where we will always find ourselves here. And the two cities he brings out are these. One is the secular city. The secular city is the city of man. It comes from man's thoughts his goals, his passions, his ideas, his morals, his values, and is built by man at his hands and his resources for man. Ultimately, it's for the glory of man. We find this through the pages of Scripture. In in Genesis chapter 11, Shortly after the flood and the repopulation of the earth, what will we find? We find the people come together, and they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with this top in the heavens, and let us make a name for who? Ourselves. This is for us. Let's make ourselves a city. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in Daniel chapter 4, says something of the same. He says, it's not this Great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. See, the problem with the kingdom of man is it's all for the kingdom of man. And all the goals and all the objectives and everything that the kingdom of man wants to accomplish, he cannot do because it's a broken kingdom. It is a kingdom that's led by the flesh and sinful desires. And every great ambition ultimately comes to corruption and everything that they never wanted to be and I got bad news for you every single one of us without fail we are born in the kingdom of man every one of us and unless something happens we will live according to the desires the passions the goals the morals the principles of the kingdom of man but there's another kingdom and in contrast to that is the city of God It is formed of God, his mind, his heart, his passions, his goals, his standards, his principles, his holiness, his righteousness. It is built by God, by his resources, and it's built for him, for his glory. And so you've got the kingdom of God and you've got the kingdom of man. Every one of us begins life in the kingdom of man. But God so loved the world that he would not leave us in the kingdom of man. He sent his son, Jesus, to come and live among us in the kingdom of man and to die for our sins. And when we come to understand that we are at offense to a holy God and that we need a savior and we surrender our lives to Jesus, then we are transferred from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God. Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again if you will see the kingdom. You must be born again if you experience the kingdom. And Paul puts it this way. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So listen, church, as members of the body of Christ, we are part of the kingdom of God. But we live in the kingdom of man. And here's the struggle The struggle is this, how do we reconcile the two? How do we navigate life as we're in the kingdom of God, living among the kingdom of men? How can we be salt and light? And through the course of time, there have been two major questions that mankind has asked, particularly believers. They say, listen, is it our goal to take over the kingdom of America and to dominate it and make paradise on earth? The answer to that is no. Oh, well then, is our responsibility to remove ourselves from culture and be silent and not worry about where culture does? The answer to that is no. Listen, as we're living this life, there are two dangerous canyons we can fall in. If we're not careful, we can fall into the canyon of total domination, or we can fall into the canyon of total isolation. And if we're any one of those canyons, we can never impact our culture. So living as salt and light, we're not called for domination. We're not called to isolation. We are called for spiritual transformation. And here is where I believe the church has missed it for the last 25 years. We have been battling in areas that God has not called us to battle in. And the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 confronts a very, very pagan society in Athens. I mean, every sin imaginable took place in that city. Every depravity you can think of happened in that city. And the Apostle Paul tells us what we are to do to experience spiritual transformation. It's not about domination and isolation. It is about transformation. In Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, the Apostle Paul writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Actually, Luke writes it. And here's what we find the Apostle Paul says beginning in verse 22. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. And I found also an altar with this inscription So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask today, Father, that you would show us exactly how we are to be of your kingdom, in this kingdom, to impact it in a transformative way for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul says three things to us, and here's what I just want to land on. These three things, he says, are the ways that we are to influence and impact our culture through spiritual transformation. Let me give you the first one. It's so simple. We must be sure we're fighting the right war. We must be sure we're fighting the right war. Now, the Apostle Paul says that we are in a war. It is a spiritual warfare, and some people don't like that phrase. Oh, that sounds too adversarial, but we are in a spiritual warfare We're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and spiritual forces and dark places. That's what we're living. That's what we're fighting. But we must make sure that we are fighting the right war. Now, the question comes, what is the right war? In order to answer what is the right war, let me tell you what the right war is not first, okay? First of all, the right war is not about ideology. It's not about ideology, We have been fighting the wrong war as the body of Christ for many years. And what we want to do is we want to fight the systems of ideology. The apostle Paul did not do that. He goes into Athens and he confronts some of the most brilliant philosophers of his day. Remember, Athens was the home to Socrates and his student Plato and his student Aristotle. And these were some really brilliant philosophers. And all through that city, there were all kinds of ideologies, and there were all kinds of philosophies. In that city was a group of people called the Epicureans. The Epicureans believed that all matter was evil. And the only thing that was good was the mind and the intellect. So let your body do whatever it wants. Engage in every kind of sin and depravity that you want to. Only keep your mind pure. And they tried to dissociate their mind from the body. That was a philosophy and and one of the positions that many of the people lived by in that culture. And so that was an ideology that was prevalent there. There was another group of people called the Stoics. And the Stoics were pantheists. They believed that God was in everything and everything was in God. The spark of divinity was in every tree, every rock, every person, every animal. And these were some of the ideologies of the day. Let me tell you what Paul didn't do. He didn't attack their ideologies. He knew it. He understood it. But he knew that wasn't the war because ideologies change And the Apostle Paul did not stand toe-to-toe with them and argue and tell them that they were wrong in the midst of all of these things. That was the wrong war. And I want to tell you what the church has done. We have been attacking ideologies. And one of the things that we do is we come against all of these different positions and we don't realize that that's not the war that we're to fight. Those things change. And changing somebody's ideology never transforms their life. Let me tell you what the result is. When we think it's the ideology, we tell people that if you don't believe my ideology, then you're wrong. Or you want to improve your life? Why don't you be a part of my political party? Or why don't you believe the way I believe? Why don't you vote the way I vote? Let me tell you what the danger of that is. And this is exactly what has been happening in the church for the last 25 to 30 years. Here's the danger. If we attack the ideology and make that the battle, then what happens is a political party becomes associated with Christianity. Do you hear that? The Constitution becomes equal to the gospel. Do you hear that? The American dream becomes the kingdom of God. And when we fight ideologies, it is a losing battle because it never transforms the heart. So the wrong war, ideologies. The right war is not about ideology and the right war is not about morality. Here's a big one. This is what the church has gone down for years and has missed it. It's not about morality. Paul was in one of the most immoral cities imaginable. Listen, these people were idolaters. It was said of Athens as a joke that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. You know why? They had on every street corner statues of some deity. Every building was dedicated to some deity. And there was so much idolatry in there. The temple of Athena had her standing with a spear, and the tip of the spear could be seen from 40 miles away. And they worshiped there. It was filled with immorality. Prostitution was rampant because of the Temple of Athena. Part of the spiritual experience was temple prostitutes going out every single night by the thousands into that community. Adultery was at all time high, and the divorce rate in Athens was incredible. Unwanted children were being put to death every single day, left exposed to die in the cold because they were unwanted slavery in the roman empire was worse than any other empire in history do you know that in rome there were more slaves than there were free citizens every single issue of that culture was depraved and what did paul do paul did not form a coalition He didn't grab a bunch of people together and say, hey, let's go protest on the temple of Athena. We don't like all those prostitutes coming out at night. We don't like all of these things. Why? Because Paul understood this. Every person acts and lives out of the condition of their heart. Lost people act like lost people. And they always do. And his goal was not trying to create some behavior modification that if we could get people to just clean up their act if people would just be more responsible citizens, if people would take care of things like I take care of things, then culture would be better. And it never is. And we do the same thing as a church. You know what we've done in the last 25 years? Jerry Falwell started many years ago what was called the moral majority. Many people jumped on that bandwagon, but that added to the great confusion of the church and what our responsibility is. Because here's what we did with the moral majority, and here's exactly what he said. He said, said that morality and political activism are the tools of the gospel and will change and save America. He was wrong. He was terribly wrong. Because what have we done? We've looked at the culture and we pointed our finger at them and we've told them that's wrong. That's not right. That's ungodly. You shouldn't do that. Clean up your life. Do this. Do that. And we've created a generation below us now that have missed the most important element of the war. And we're leaning on behavior modification to change people, and it never works. It doesn't. Ideology. The wrong battle. Morality. The wrong battle. What's the right war? The right war is about theology. Oh, we don't like that term theology because we think it's dull. We think it's boring. But I want to tell you, truth is what changes a culture. And the whole problem with our culture is we have no truth to guide us. The apostle Paul, when he went to Athens... He didn't try to change their ideology. He didn't try to change their morality. You know what he did? In verse 17 of chapter 17, he goes to the synagogue and he preaches the gospel. He goes to the marketplace and he preaches the gospel. He's invited to the Areopagus, which is the most prestigious place of debate in all of Athens. And you know what he does? He preaches the gospel. He tells them about the unknown God who is the creator of all things and the father of the Lord Jesus and that God appointed him to die on behalf of man so that they might become righteous in a relationship with him and the truth is, he is not far from them. He preaches the gospel. This is what we've missed. We've been caught into all the arguments. We've been seduced by the kingdoms of men. And we're fighting the wrong war. And as a result, we've never been able to have the traction needed. The truth is the gospel. And what the church should be about is the gospel. And we should be preaching the gospel. Why is that so important? Listen, the gospel is what transforms my ideologies. The gospel is what transforms my politics. The gospel is what transforms my morality. The gospel is what informs me on how I should treat other people, how I should love other people. The gospel informs me that I should stand against injustice. The gospel tells me I should stand against racism. The gospel tells me I should protect the lives of unborn. And when we've been giving people the finger of how they ought to change their lives and we don't give them the gospel. We can lead a bunch of people in a march. We can lead a bunch of people towards a movement and not one of them will ever come to know the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the truth of the gospel. That's the right war. I want to challenge you to read about the New Herbides Islands. There was an incredible revival that broke out there. And you know what happened in the New Herbodies Islands? People didn't protest. People didn't march. You know what they did? They fell on their face because the Spirit of God came through those islands in such a powerful way that people were changed. The jails were closed because nobody was being arrested anymore. The judges were being laid off because they had no court cases. The police were sent home because people's lives were transformed by the truth of the gospel. Their own mules that worked in the the mines couldn't understand the commands of the men operating them because they no longer used profanity, and the mules didn't know what they were saying. The gospel is the war truth and theology is what transforms a culture we need to fight the right war but paul goes on we must make sure not only we're fighting the right war but we're fighting in the right way we're fighting in the right way (laughs) what does that mean we're fighting in the right way he says in second corinthians 10 verse 3 for though we walk in the flesh we are not waging war according to the flesh. Some translation says we're not ra- waging war according to the world's standards. Paul did ministry the right way. He goes into Athens. He begins to preach the gospel. What do they do? They ridicule him. They criticize him. They call him a babbling fool. They, they leave because he starts talking about the resurrection of the dead. But you know what Paul never does? He never retaliates. He never says an evil, unkind word to the people of Athens. In fact, he does the opposite. He sees all the idols. Instead of calling them idolaters, you know what he says? I see your people are spiritual. Notice how he said that? He even quotes their own poets. Your own poets have said we live and move and have our being in him and that God is not far from us. Wow, you've read our guys? Paul made friends with them. He met them in the marketplace. He met them in the synagogues. He spent time with them. He listened to their hearts. He listened to their arguments. And you know what he did? He loved them. He told them the truth about sin. He told them the truth about The gospel he told them the truth about eternal damnation but he loved them in the midst of it and he refused to treat them the way that they treated him I'm afraid that in our culture we no longer love people like that if they don't fit our political party or our agenda or they don't fit what we think ought to happen then we just cut them off we don't do things the way the world does we don't. The way to fight against the abortion industry is not to bomb an abortion clinic. We don't do it that way. The way to communicate with people is not to cut them off when you don't understand them. We don't do it that way. The approach is not to use some of the most vicious, unkind language when somebody doesn't agree with your position. We don't do it that way. And let me tell you, I am highly embarrassed of the believers who are getting on the Internet these days and are using words to tear people down. And they're using words to discredit people and to slander people and even using it against their very brothers and sisters in Christ. All the while, the world is watching and saying, wow, that's the best you got. And we don't even build up one another. Let me say this. The church's role is not to develop public policy for the culture. That is not the church's role. It is not our job to develop public policy for the culture. That's government's job. That's individuals who work for governing agencies to do that. It is our job as believers to vote and to put the right people that we have convictions for in office. That is our responsibility. It is our responsibility as a church to stand up and to speak against oppression and unjust treatment of people. That is our job. It is even our calling on some of our parts to work in government. But listen, if we only simply think that the church is nothing but a lobbying group to have our own agenda met, then we simply play the God card and we don't love our culture. Why am I on the school board? I want prayer in school. Not because I love kids. Why am I on that county commission? Because I want my agenda done. Not because I love my community. When Jesus comes to the well and he sees the woman at the well... And he knows that she has committed an adultery. He knows that she has had five husbands. He knows the immorality of her life. He speaks truth, but then he loves her with grace. She invites him to her town, and many people come to faith in Christ. The woman called an adultery. Jesus knows what she has done is wrong and deserves death, but he speaks truth and he demonstrates grace and he delivers her from that rela- that lifestyle. And she comes to a relationship with Christ. He goes to a town called Jericho, and there's a little short man up in a tree named Zacchaeus, and he invites him to his house, and he says, tonight salvation has come in. Why? Because Jesus told him the truth, but he loved him. The right way is we love people, and we love them the way the Lord Jesus loves them. We must fight the right war. We must fight the right way. Thirdly, we must be sure we're fighting with the right weapons. This is huge. We must use the right weapons. Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We are to use the right weapons. I want to tell you, the apostle Paul didn't use the weapons of the world. They don't work. Paul's mentality wasn't, you slander, I'll slander. You protest, I'll protest. You fight, I'll fight. That has never changed a culture, never. Secular means for transformation never work. They never do. So Paul uses the right weapons. What are the right weapons? He says in Ephesians, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Then he goes on, he says, put on the whole armor of God. What is the armor of God? It is the belt of truth. It is the breastplate of righteousness. It's the shoes that are shod with the gospel of peace. It's the shield of faith. It's the helmet of salvation. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We got all that, and we know that. But then he adds two more that we often forget. Prayer. Prayer. I want to tell you, prayer is hard. Prayer is difficult. Many people falsely, under, many people misunderstand prayer. Many people think that prayer prepares us for the work of the ministry. Wrong. Prayer is the work of the ministry. I love it when little ladies come to me sometimes and they'll say, oh, Pastor, I just can't do anything anymore. The only thing I can do is pray. And I say, great, you finally made yourself useful. That's the greatest thing we can do is pray. The Apostle Paul says this to the Ephesians, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Do you know what would happen if every church made a commitment that on a certain day, at a certain time, every single member would pray for their pastor or pray for their pastors and their staff? Do you know what would happen? Those pastors would be transformed. The words coming out of them would be powerful because you would be interceding on their behalf before a holy God to prepare them and make them ready for ministry. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with marching. We march, we take stands against issues all the time. But before we march, what would happen before a million people descend on Washington, D.C., before a million Christians descend on Washington, D.C., we begin on our knees and we pray. What would happen if this church made a commitment and every church in Wilmington made a commitment that we're going to pray for our leaders? We're going to pray for our authorities. We're going to pray for our police department. We're going to pray for our our lawyers. We're going to pray for all of the people who help protect us in this culture. What would happen? I believe Wilmington would become a model of spiritual transformation for the nation. I just found out that on Tuesday nights, there's a group of people now meeting at 7 o'clock in front of the Wilmington Police Department. 7 o'clock, no agenda, but to pray. To pray. To pray for all of our leaders, to pray for those who are mistreated, to pray for those who are downcast, to pray for those whose lives are in danger because of abortion, to pray for all of those circumstances, but not only to pray, but then to move and do something about it. It's a powerful weapon. It's prayer. But then he adds one more. Preaching. You might say, oh wait, man, God hadn't called me to preach. Yeah. Here's how he puts it. Pray for me also that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You know why he's in jail? He's in jail because he preached the gospel. I would say if you're gonna be in jail, make sure you're in jail for something that's worthy of being in jail for. He's in jail because he preached the gospel. And there have been many men and women throughout our culture who have been in jail. Martin Luther King has written some of his greatest letters in prison, in jail, because he was preaching truth of the gospel. And what do we need to do? It goes back to the gospel. Here's the mystery. Here's the mystery. That God would use a Galilean carpenter to come onto the scene 2,000 years ago and who would teach wonderful truths about the Father and He would declare through mighty works His power and His authority and He would love people and He would go to the cross falsely accused unjustly sentenced and die and be buried and rise on the third day and transform the lives of men and women and boys and girls all around the world And one day the kingdoms of the world will be the kingdom of Christ. That is the mystery. And church, that is our mission. The right war begins with the gospel. The right way is loving people the way Jesus loves them right weapons. Prayer and proclamation of truth. What our world needs more than anything else is the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Everyone. You and I are privileged to live in one of the greatest nations in the world. And even though she has a difficult past, even though she has struggled with injustice, even though there are areas that desperately need fixing, we're living in one of the greatest nations on earth. But let me remind you, This is not our home. Jesus says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. As wonderful as America is, America is not the kingdom of God. She is not. This morning as I was preparing to share with you, this thought came to my mind and I wrote it down. And here's what I want to close with. There is a kingdom we live in and there is a kingdom we live for. Make sure you are living in and living for the right king. There's the kingdom we live in, and there's the kingdom we live for. The kingdom you and I are called to live for is not the kingdom of men. It's the kingdom of God. And we are to be living for the kingdom of God. We are to be investing in the kingdom of God while living in the kingdom of man. But I'm afraid many people have reversed that. They're living for the kingdom of man, and they're living in the kingdom of God. They're investing everything here as though this is the end with hopes that one day they'll enjoy the benefits of the kingdom of God. And we've reversed it. And when the church learns and be able to hang on to that and say, hey, listen, I'm to live for the kingdom of God while I live in the kingdom of man, then you know what you end up doing? You're bringing the kingdom of man into the kingdom of God as we share the gospel as we preach the truth as we fight the right war in the right way with the right weapons I said that some people might be mad at me because I didn't go enough of the patriotism of America some might be mad at me because I didn't go enough to what's wrong with America that's not the focus Focus is the kingdom of God and when you and I live according to the kingdom of God then it benefits the kingdom of man I love the way one scholar said it he said if you pursue the kingdom of earth and not the kingdom of God you get neither but if you pursue the kingdom of God you get earth thrown in with it because there's the transformative power of the gospel So whose kingdom will you live for? How will we make an impact with these kingdoms in conflict? It's Jesus. It's the gospel. It's truth. It's love. It's perseverance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And Father, we thank you for difficult times because in these times you force us to face ourselves, our own deficiencies, and the truth. Father, would we allow your gospel to do your work in us as believers? And Father, I recognize that there are some that, that do not belong to the kingdom of God. They're still in the kingdom of man. And their only hope is Jesus. And I would pray, Father, that you would bring them to that place of conviction and brokenness, that they would come to know the truth that Jesus is the one who can transform their lives and bring them the peace with you that they desperately need. And they become agents of the good news of Christ. Father, I ask that as we leave here today and as we contemplate these things, that you would challenge our own hearts for your glory. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.